Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm speaking with Heather Copelson about her recent book, Faithful Bodies, Performing Religion and Race in the Puritan Atlantic, which examines the intersection between religious practices and racial identities among a number of groups, primarily in colonial New England and Bermuda. Heather, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, so let's just kind of get started on how uh, you got into this project, what led, it to, what led you to this, and uh, what you were kind of curious about when investigating it. Sure. Well, the uh, <laughs> the very beginnings of the project are way back when I was in graduate school. My, I, my advisor told me I should really think about where I wanted to spend time. And uh, I w- was already interested in religion and Puritans and race. And so um, he, he suggested, oh, well, you know, look at look at Ireland because there were Puritans there and they haven't been quite as studied as the ones in New England. And look at Bermuda. And so I started looking into it and, and got very interested in the fact that Bermuda had had no indigenous population uh, and that there was slavery there, but it seemed to have a different character character than in other um, other places in the Americas. Uh, but then also on a more practical practical note, as I was talking to friends and family and colleagues about this, they all said, oh, well, you know, Bermuda has much better weather. So I think really you should go to Bermuda. <laughs> and and I have on the whole I've found that to be true, although that first trip in February when it was dreadfully cold and damp and cold in the archives, I was thinking, I don't know that the weather is so different. <laughs> uh, but but location aside, what really interested me was that so here is a place, a colony, a place that's still a colony, uh, where slavery was integral and central to uh, the way society operated, but in fact that seemed to have racial categories that were working out differently and that had a strong Puritan influence in the beginning, but then church organization went uh, somewhat the opposite direction that it did in New England. So New England, you end up with a strong sense of congregations all being individual, and in Bermuda, they they end up deciding that uh, they need they want to have some kind of uh, presbytery, some kind of overarching system. Uh, and there was also um, the colonial sources for Bermuda were were really uh, concise, and it's, it's a small enough amount of material that it's possible for the 17th century to really feel like you can read most of what's out there. And um, some of that, of course, is, is a sad thing for historians because the proprietary company that uh, was was the Summers Island Company that ran Bermuda for its the first part of its existence. Their papers were probably intentionally destroyed during a dispute over the island's charter. And so sad for historians, uh, but I guess good for whoever was trying to conceal the books at the time. <laughs> Uh, but that means that the colonial records are really mo- there. A lot of them are just in the Bermuda archives. There are also some things in the public record office in England. And it it's a, a project that it's possible to have a read through records. Uh, they weren't destroyed by hurricanes or floods as in many other places and really try and get a sense of what what were people doing and what were they getting in trouble for uh, and to look for religion outside of church meetings. That was really one of my main interests. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the New England, of course, has been very well studied and continues to be intriguing to people. Uh, and I was, I was really pulled to try and figure out what, what the Puritans thought they were doing, but also what they did and how their actions really showed their ideas about human difference. So both what we think about, what we think now as, what we think about now as race, uh, and then religious differences and how that overlapped with 
geography and people's sense of uh, distance and um, and really where their place in the world. That's a really good starting place, and, and I wonder if you could say just a bit more about Bermuda in terms of what it's like as a colony. You, you took a few steps talking about that at the beginning, but, um, you know, because this is a podcast around Caribbean studies, there's something, there's some interesting parallels and differences between Bermuda and what's traditionally thought as kind of the, the more um, um, traditional uh, Lesser Antilles and Greater Antilles. So what makes Bermuda unique? What, maybe what are some of the similarities with the Caribbean? And if you could just sort of describe what that society was like. Well, what makes it, I don't know about unique, but I would say unusual, um, is that it's, and not, not only its geographic location and that it is isolated in terms of distance from uh, other land, uh, it's, now I'm forgetting the exact number of nautical miles, but you know we'll say roughly 600, I think. Um, although ocean currents, of course, meant that travel, um, much of maritime travel came near Bermuda and used Bermuda as, as, a, as a turning point uh, if they didn't run onto the reefs because it's a very low-line island. Um, but this was, so it, it's founded as a colony quite early for the English, uh, you know, late for, for other European powers, but in the scheme of English colonization, it's pretty early. Um, and it's really, it's quite successful relatively quickly. Um, and in part because of the, the people that, um, you know, the Indians and Africans that the early English colonizers bring from the Caribbean. So there are Caribbean ties right from the beginning. Um, and the, the knowledge of, for instance, how to plant tobacco and uh, harvest it and cure it is really key to Bermuda's 17th century economic success. And the, that initial knowledge, uh, the records show that it, it comes largely from Africans uh, who are brought from somewhere in, in the Caribbean. Uh, and as Bermuda develops as an English colony, those, those ties really continue so that they uh, survive. Um, you know, there's this initial period of isolation where the, the proprietary company, the Summers Island Company that's run back uh, in London, they try to keep the islanders isolated from from others, but there there are always some comings and goings. And then once the company period ends at the end of the 17th century, certainly it ties along the um, the Circum Caribbean are are essential to Bermuda's economy and society. And so that uh, in terms of material goods, for instance, you find a lot of similar material goods. Uh, I would say what's different from a lot of the, the Caribbean colonies is that the racial makeup, the demographic is quite different. So that it's only in the mid 18th century that I think it's 1730s is when you first get a 30 percent uh, of the population being uh, of African descent. Um, and it only reaches, you know, it barely reaches 50 percent. Uh, by the end of the 18th century. So that's quite different from, say, Barbados, which is, you know, 80% by by the late 17th century. Uh, so slavery is very much, and racial slavery is very much a part of uh, the island, but, um, as I said, the, the demographics are very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you use Bermuda as a kind of a contrast and a comparison to New England. And one of the things I really liked about uh, the book is you have these early chapters um, that have a very refined examination of, of non-European religious practices. Um, so would you mind telling us a little bit about the Tayano and Algonquin and West African rituals uh, that are important in these colonial, colonial religious traditions? Sure. Um, it's, it's drawing on you know, a lot of thinking about the... Um, Really, the similarities among all these peoples in the in the 17th century and and before even uh, as as I was trying to delineate the real differences that there were, but that 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 for all of all of the people that other other than human beings, unseen beings of one kind or another, um, 
uh, were very important in their lives in different ways. Um, and so a lot of what I do in, in the first few chapters is really try to establish that worldview. So to think about, for instance, the, um, the religious importance of uh, crystals uh, for, for Southern Algonquians and so why uh, crystals were, were seen as a, a means to access other than human powers or um, games of chance. You know how that was a way uh, for men, especially, to demonstrate that they were able to access and harness the the power and influence of other than human beings to win uh, at games of chance. Um, and then for uh, the the Taino, thinking about the geography, you know that certain that places have geographic power, uh, that uh, objects that are shiny uh, and that have come from far away are also uh, representative and embodiments of power of one kind or another. Um, and uh, that, for instance, the uh, one of the things I talk a lot about are, are semi uh, figures that are not only, uh, you know, I think some European sources describe them as idols, uh, but really they're, they're ways of uh, giving a body in the present to this community member who now exists in this different form uh, and has powers that, that people uh, who are, are just in the, in the land of the living that most of them can't access. Um, and so what I did in each of these cases was really try to think about the material items um, and then just the actions that people took to try and uh, access uh, this, the powers of of these of these beings, and to really cross the threshold from um, from the world of the living into the world of um, what has been called the spirits, although spirits have connotations that that I I try to avoid. And how does the part of the the title of your book is uh, "Faithful Bodies," and so the body is really important, not just in those uh, non-European practices, but also when you're discussing the Puritans. And, and so, before we get to the Puritans, um, I wonder if you could uh, talk to me just a little bit about how the body figures into some of these non-European traditions, and then um, sort of why you think it's important to reorient reorient our understanding um, towards the considerations of bodies when we're thinking about religion. Yeah. Oh, and and one thing I I didn't. I meant to say about Southern Algonquins is that uh, wampum, for instance, wampum was both used once Europeans came as a currency, but was was representative of temporal power and the resources it took to uh, create beads out of the, the linings of, of shells, um, but then also had spiritual power in, in and of itself. Uh, and so thinking about the different meanings of, of wampum um, to Southern to various Southern Algonquian peoples. Um, and so in terms of, of the body, um, thinking about the body both as, as the human body, um, you know, with flesh and, and bones, and, and then really trying to link that to and understand different ways of, of seeing uh, the community body. So um, that the community is, is, a group of individuals acting together or against each other, but that how they think of themselves as a group is often um, filtered through ideas about the physical body. Uh, and then, uh, for instance, in the, in the first chapter, I also think about uh, geography. So homeland as um, linked to different parts of, of the body. Uh, so, uh, thinking about, um, you know, so certain caves where uh, the Taino came out of, you know, that those were uh, parts of, of the body of the island uh, and that their political organization uh, was arranged based on on thinking of, of uh, Hispaniola as, as an island or, sorry, as a body, you know, so that there's a spine and there are limbs and there's a head and... Um, eyes. Um, 
I'm sorry. So that was <laughs> what else? What else did you ask? Uh, well, I think it just kind of get a, get us into a conversation around this this idea of, of the body and how it relates to religious practice. And and uh, I guess maybe the second part of the question. I apologize if I cut you off on the earlier question. Was just um, why you think maybe we need to have more of a, a reorientation towards a consideration of the body. And if you think that's not really represented properly when people talk about uh, colonial religion or these early American traditions, is the body not really um, present as much as it should be in scholarly examinations of religion? I, I think in the last you know, five and, and ten years, it's very much more present. Um, I, but it, when I was beginning my research, what I what I was thinking about was, well, you know, everybody has bodies. And in fact, the Puritans are pretty earthy about the way they think. I mean, they're not trying to deny the existence of, of the human body, but really to harness it in what they thought was, was a godly path, was God's idea of order for the world. But a lot of what, what scholarship or the, the, I would say not the popular idea of Puritans is, I think, still often <laughs> You know, that they they hated the body, they hated sex, they just you know were were killjoys in in every way. Uh, and so to really think about religion as more than these sermons that are, were printed by um, were published by a few ministers, and to think of how people who you know maybe didn't even always make it to meeting on Sunday um, thought about their relationship with. Super, well, with other than human beings or uh, that with deities that they could not see, um, and, but that whose presence they were always trying to discern. And so, um, you know, thinking about the the impact of that presence on on their bodies, their their human bodies. Uh, so I think there's there's been a lot of work, I would say, recently on that, um, but it hasn't quite filtered into kind of popular ideas about um, colonial religion, if we take that to be the European side. And then when it started to happen, what I was seeing a lot of was people would analyze the body or uh, material goods more in relation to natives or Africans or um, so people who were not of European descent. And then Europeans would get this very, uh, more word and book-based um, analysis of their their theology and their dogma, and and then that was especially true of uh, people looking at Protestants. You know, so they're you known as the people of the word. So okay, Catholics have rituals. We can talk about those, but for the Protestants, let's talk about all these sermons that were printed. But they're really in terms of how people, how religion made a difference in religious um, belief ended up affecting their their worlds was through actions, you know, through bodies and movements and um, what they did or didn't do throughout the day. And so I was trying to figure out a wider part of Puritan experience and then also to think about uh, all the peoples in the Americas on a more, in similar ways, rather than saying, all right, the non-Europeans get the body and they're physical creatures and the Europeans, especially the Puritans, you know, they they're trying to deny the body. So we're just going to talk about you know, their their intellectual ideas. So it's to try and, and get away from that. And try to level those experiences a little bit. Right. Um, so before we get into uh, kind of intersection um, uh, between these different groups, uh, maybe you just say a little bit more. You sort of started talking about the, the Puritans and the ways that they have a kind of corporeal sense about religion. Um, and so you talk about not just kind of the body as it relates to certain traditions within um, Puritan practice, but also concepts around the body of Christ and the body politic. And so could you sketch that out just a little bit before we start talking about how that then gets applied to, to conversion? Yeah. Uh, so the, and the, the body of Christ was, uh, was really still at the center of, of Puritan life. I mean, they did not, uh, their their most important ritual was the Lord's Supper or, you know, the meal commemorating uh, Jesus's last meal with the disciples. And, and they didn't believe that the substance of the of the meal, you know, the, the wine and, and the bread was or whatever they might be eating was um, sacred in and of itself. Um, but that, in fact, it could it could focus their 
meditation on on God, and so that the physical parts of the ritual and the actions were in fact important, even as they were saying that the ritual wasn't the biggest deal, it still mattered to them. They still thought that, for instance, silver would make when when possible made a more appropriate vessel for this meal to to drink the the wine um, or for this meal than than wood. Um, and so it, it's the idea that uh, there are disparate members of a community who are brought, brought together and then transformed through their uh, belief, uh, through, through their conversion, which I guess is maybe in getting into your next question a little bit. Um, but that part of being Christian is undergoing this transformation so that you are no longer only an individual uh, but that you are part of this larger body that is both the 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 gathered congregation of your immediate local community and then this very uh, geographically disparate um, community of of Protestants, uh, so that the body of Christ is not just the people you see around you every day or or on a weekly basis, um, but really people who are also other Christians. I don't know if that's. Uh, I feel like I might have missed some of your questions. Oh no, that, that's that's a good way to to kind of think about the Puritan aspect of this. So then let's let's kind of join these two groups together: the non-Europeans and the and the European Puritans. Um, and, and so obviously conversion is a big part of this, and and concepts about um, you know are non-Europeans appropriate members of the body of Christ. Um, that, that's where you kind of see ideas about the body coming out, especially in your text. Um, but let's just talk about maybe how initially optimistic white settlers were, both in New England and also in Bermuda, um, about the chances of converting indigenous and African people. Well, they thought that uh, if they were properly instructed, that um, you know, of course, they would see the, the superiority of uh, what they were what the, the colonists were trying to teach them uh, and would strive to avoid uh, strive to avoid eternal damnation um, and and to discern themselves as as one of you know one of the ones whom whom God had saved uh, and that there there was also I mean, many you know sometimes people they encountered did show interest, either because of previous contact with Europeans or uh, they were interested in other aspects of uh, contact with with the English and with other Europeans. So uh, material goods, for instance, um, or, you know, that for some people it meant um, being able, you know, a lot of a lot of peoples were in. Um, you know, we're coming through various population crises, you know, that it was a way becoming Christian might offer an avenue to uh, adding on another means of, of organizing community. Uh, and so that was the other thing that, that missionary work from the English did not look the same as it did you know, from, say, the Jesuits, um, but it also was not entirely absent. Um, so that they were interested in it, um, and uh, yeah, and, and were the other thing that I was uh, that started me on this project was really thinking about um, you know certainly religion has been used as an excuse for lots of violence uh, and oppression, but to also think about well you know if when if we take people as sincere in aspects of their belief, how does that motivate them? And how does that alter the way or affect the way they see the world? Um, and so if we if we think about it from that sense, that, you know, if the Puritans did want to convert others. Um, they wanted to convert natives. They wanted to convert Africans. And, and in Bermuda, what you see, because uh, lifespans were relatively... Uh, long and there were you had um, multi-generational families 
relatively early and there was not as much, say, um, selling enslaved people away um, that, that, that people over time did become familiar with uh, Christianity and uh, were, were familiar with the practices and, and seemed to have taken them on and made them part of their, their own practice. Yeah, and then as you mentioned, it's, uh, as with all religions, when you get these these uh, collisions of culture, these uh, syncretisms of culture, uh, they get adapted and adopted in certain ways. And so, what were what were the ways in which um, indigenous people, both in, in Bermuda and also in in New England, and also West Africans that came over, how did they adapt and adopt these Christian practices? Do you see a lot of variation? Um, uh, to what degree were they kind of reflecting the types of of practices that the, the Puritans wanted them to reflect. Well, the um, in the some of the the material practices, um, what you know, are we found out about through archaeological work. So one that I I opened the book with was uh, there was a meeting house of praying Indians, so Indians who had uh, who declared themselves Christian, and, and some of them, at least the English, also acknowledged as, as Christian. So they had a meeting house, uh, and in the corner there, was a, a, there were crystals buried there, which indicates that, um, so that was seen as a spiritually powerful substance, so that they were combining um, practices that they had had before Christianity with new Christian practices. And so it's, it's not... Um, you know, what I try to do in the book is not to say, okay, well, one is more authentic than the other, but to really think about how people just navigated um, their way through these, through these, through religious practice, some of which were new to them and, and some of which, um, you know, their communities or versions of their communities had been engaging in from, you know, from time immemorial. Uh, so that the crystals, I think, are a really powerful example because it's certainly something that uh, had say one of the Puritan missionaries known about, uh, he would have been, you know, say um, John Eliot, uh, you know, or Daniel Gookin. They had these well-known missionaries who would have been aghast at the idea that uh, the praying Indians were still burying crystals uh, in in their meeting houses. But looking at it uh, from the point of view of um, of those native individuals, and they were they were Christian. They uh, prayed with Gukin. They um, followed it, and then and they also were calling. and And so the meeting house was uh, a place of gathering that was that held a lot of spiritual power. And so crystal, the crystal was one way to try and focus that and really even intensify it. And uh, so that's. That's one uh, one example, um, and then in terms of and initially in Bermuda, the Central African, West Central African influences is stronger. Uh, so you see some of the early uh, Africans who were brought to the island are Catholic, um, so that they're uh, especially if they came from you know the Congo, that they are um, Congolese Catholic. Uh, and so, um, the various godparenting ceremonies that were more similar to things that happened in, say, a Catholic uh, context. Um, but then you also see um, baptisms of um, of people of African descent in Bermuda that are recorded in, in the church records, as you do uh, in in New England. Um, so th- those are um, and those are are some of the ways. Um, and then in terms of um, how, say, the English were affected. I mean, one of the the things I talk about in the third chapter, which is really thinking about um, the Lord's uh, supper. So this important Christian meal, and then the substance. You know, the, what what was the bread? You know, what actually was the substance that made up the physical bread that people ate? Uh, so in Bermuda, they end up using cassava to make bread rather than, say, wheat flour. Uh, and cassava had, um, for indigenous peoples, 
of the Caribbean had you know, was was an important uh, food and, and often had spiritual meaning or was was a, seen as a gift from um, from either the gods or an important um, hero figure. And so once the English are using that cassava to make bread to be eaten at this central religious ritual, um, even if they didn't think of themselves as being affected by their environment, um, they were. Mm-hmm. So then as these adaptations are occurring and, and as um, natives and, and Africans are, are coming over to the Puritan fold, um, what started to reduce the Puritans' um, level of comfort with evangelizing to those groups? Um, where do you start to see some limitations in their desirability? Um, where do you see some sort of fractures in in sort of how they're seeing this conversion come about? Um, well, it, it's overlapping with um, other you know, areas of of life. So you get you know the level of violence. Um, makes a difference and then this uh, an idea the increasing idea that um religion that that even changing bodily practices is not enough so ideas that inherit that certain characteristics are going to be inherited along with skin color and are not changeable um that's part of what starts to affect them. And, and Bermuda is also an inter- another interesting reason that it's uh, uh, intriguing to me was that um, so they, their laws about, say, interracial marriage don't mention uh, or, or unlaw- the regulation of unlawful sex don't mention religion as uh, really a, a, a category that's attached to or expressed as race. Um, the way that, say, a lot of the the laws in many Caribbean colonies, in the English Caribbean colonies do, uh, so that the law against bastardy uh, in Bermuda doesn't mention race, you know, so it doesn't separate out interracial sex as a separate category until 1723, and even then they don't conflate Christians with whites. Um, and so in Bermuda, the, the difference uh, seems to be that as, um, you know, as the, the economics of the, of the island shift uh, and then religion um, starts to be, it's still important, but it's not seen as something that needs to organize uh, and affect the state in quite the same prescriptive way um, that that that's an element that starts to to make for uh, less acceptance. Um, and then in, in New England, I mean, it's, it's repeated frustration uh, from the English side. So aside from the wars and, and violence, which are certainly significant things, that repeated frustration that, that there, you know, these natives were, were still not practicing Christianity and didn't look like and didn't act like the English in in all the same ways or all the ways that that they they thought they they should um, and so that's I guess the, the kind of big big scale and or would it be well the the broad answer <laughs> <laughs> well we can get into some, uh, the specifics too if you want I mean one of the things you talk about is is how important something like King Philip's War is to to changing attitudes and um, and, you know, you certainly have this idea that there are these divergent attitudes towards race between New England and Bermuda. Um, and part of it is I think you claim that religious divisions, as they become less pronounced, um, racial exclusion becomes more aggressive. And so maybe you could chart out some of the specifics that allow that to happen and, and also the broad issues. But but how do these religious transformations start to correlate with uh, changing attitudes towards race? Uh, well, King, in, with King Philip's War, when you on on both sides uh or let's see this <laughs> it's not it's not just english versus uh the indians but by the by the end uh both natives and the english most of them seem to feel that uh, or seem to or see the events of king philip's war in the aftermath as proving that uh there there is not going to 
be you know, peaceful in, intermingling and and accommodation. Um, you know, because the English do things like uh, corral allied natives and people, praying Indians and put them on a desolate island where there's the middle of, of um, Boston Harbor where there's no, uh, you know, where there's no way for them to, to get food and only kind of call in some of the moth when they need them to, to serve as, as spies and, and guides. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the acting out of these assumptions that uh, English English acting upon assumptions that okay the the natives are not like the English they can never be and they're always going to be dangerous and treacherous um, acting out on those ideas uh, really separates um, you know they start to implement even more legal separations uh, and and limit you know say for instance that uh, Indians cannot be go into uh, town um, and cannot carry arms and uh, all of these other kinds of restrictions. Uh, and so the, cause the other thing that's happening too is that as, as a religious idea that, um, you know, everyone is, everyone is sinful and is only saved through the grace of God as that starts not to affect the, or, or the ideal is no longer that that should directly affect laws and the ordering of uh, other uh, you know, kind of earthly areas of life decreases. Then you start to see you know, class um, wealth divisions and um, and these developing racial divisions come to the fore. And the idea that uh, excluding people who are are not like you is is the way to go. And so if religion, you know, if for say um, from the English viewpoint, if Christian, if the body of Christ is no longer what really is supposed to shape everything about community, you know, if that transformation is no longer possible, then all these other barriers remain in place and in fact become more important. Um, and so you also see it with Europeans who are and English even, um, who are not Puritan. So with the Quakers, Quakers have different ideas about community in the body that don't line up very well with, uh, with Puritan ideas. And then you have um, Europeans like the, the Irish who, um, you know, when the, are, many of them are, are Catholic. And so there's the, the ideas about Irish Catholics in New England or, or in Bermuda for the few who are, are recorded there um, that you see again these ideas about people who cannot be incorporated into the community, into the body of the politic, because it's the body of it's the body politic. So this the political organization of the community is no longer so closely tied to the body of Christ, which holds the potential for transformation. You end up with something that uh, is more static, uh, or or where those human differences are, are stronger. I don't know that that actually had more detail. It's <laughs> still fairly uh, abstract, but. <laughs> well, that's why you need to read the book, right? <laughs> Get all that, those juicy details in. Um, well, well, we, I just kind of want to close with uh, maybe the last section where you're talking about uh, laws around interracial sex and, um, you know, it's a topic that I'm pretty interested in. And so uh, I know you, you touched on it already, but it's a really interesting study of how attitudes towards interracial sex, especially in Bermuda, really transform. And so um, if you could maybe just kind of chart the, the chronology of, of how that happens in Bermuda, because in some ways it encapsulates a lot, it encapsulates a lot of the ideas you're talking about throughout the book in terms of how a kind of religious tolerance transforms into maybe a later intolerance and how that has a correlation with certain attitudes towards race. So uh, if you wouldn't mind kind of summarizing that last section of the book where you, you discuss those interracial, those laws about interracial relationships. Yeah. And um, definitely, yeah, it's uh, something that uh, is actually in a way the, I wouldn't say the, the part that I worked on the longest, but I guess that was the, the first really big, um, that was my first big, foray into the into the Bermuda 
archives and, and getting into those records and and really thinking about the fact that abominable uh, to reference you know, so that the uh, unlawful sex was described as abominable in lots of, of records. And then, you know, for instance, in a lot of other uh, literature, what what happens is um, people say, well, okay, interracial sex is described as abominable, so that means that interracial sex is seen as this especially terrible thing because of ideas about the inferiority of some groups of, of humans. Um, but in Bermuda, it's really what what's very clear, um, and then on reflection makes it clear that that's what's happening in other places as well, um, is that abominable is just, it's, it's used for all unlawful sex, so all sex outside marriage, uh, no matter who is engaging in it. And that for Bermuda, the other thing that's notable is that one kind of unlawful sex does not seem to really be worse than another. Uh, so you don't get language about defilement when there's, say, an English man and an African woman the way you do in, in Virginia, for example. Um, and so that intrigued me and, and made me start counting some things about which cases were were appeared and how were people described and uh, when there were outcomes of the case, what happened. And so what I saw was that um, for you know much of the 17th century, unlawful sex was not really punished. Uh, sorry, interracial sex, unlawful sex was not really punished more harshly than other kinds. Uh, that interracial marriages were in fact recognized uh, by officials on multiple occasions um, because marriage, interracial marriage was uh, better than having people live together and uh, under the sin of fornication. Um, and you also, well, one of the changes that happens is initially all, there are lots of charges of fornication, so of sex outside marriage. Uh, and some bastardy cases, so some cases where there is a child uh, born. And then over time, those uh, simple fornication cases drop out and it becomes more about just the bastardy cases. Uh, so there seems to be more of an emphasis on, okay, what's going to happen um, with property. Uh, but you still don't see all that much more of, um, uh, you know, the, the interracial cases are not seen to be qualitatively worse. Um, and then what starts to happen. You know, so in other colonies, you get laws where, um, say, unlawful sex, where the people involved are of, of different races are punished more harshly. Um, and that separation does not happen. In Bermuda, I mean, what happened, there's an effective difference in that people who are able to pay a fine instead of being whipped are more likely um, to be white than and free than, than not, but there were, for instance, white servant women who had, were convicted of fornication with uh, a man of Afri African descent who were not able to pay the fine and so were whipped. And then what you start to see in the early uh, 18th century is that white women uh, are, many, several are able to pay their fines and not be whipped and actually pay their fines repeatedly for um, partners for uh, relations with partners often of the same of the same name. So as far as I can tell, with the same um, with the same partner. And that seems to be what eventually spurs the change in the law in 1723, where if um, where interracial fornication, then no longer a person who's convicted of that, a white person who's convicted of that, no longer has the option to uh, pay a fine instead of being whipped. They have to be whipped. Uh, the, other, the other thing that's really different about Bermuda is that you, there are cases where white men are convicted of fornication with uh, women of color. Um, and that's not I mean, I haven't done in-depth research in other colonies records, but you know, judging from the literature, that's really quite unusual. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's uh, that's 
something that that does drop out over time is the idea of uh, the religiously driven uh, ideal of everyone being uh, restricting sex to marriage uh, as that is no longer enforced so much in the courts then uh, cases of white men and women of color no longer appear in the courts and you get uh, say women of color charged with bastardy but without any partner being charged with anything mm-hmm. well i want to uh, get to this talking about your new project which is really fascinating but i want to make sure that um, that I, if there was something that you wanted to talk about with the book that I didn't quite cover. There's a lot in here and a lot to to dissect. So, is there, is there anything that we missed that you wanted to cover? Um, no, I think because I mentioned the one of the things that I I really enjoyed writing a lot, uh, even though it came quite late in the in the process of writing the book, was the was really thinking through uh, those different grains that make up bread, right? So the meaning of wheat and the meaning of maize, and so it's uh, you know, meaning in terms of um, religious practice, but then also that very uh, tactile sense of how is it different to eat something that does not have gluten versus something that mm-hmm. that does, uh, and then and then finding that there was all this you know, that um, Puritan ministers had written about the difference between you know the fine uh, what is it. I think it's Edward Taylor is the uh, heavens crisis, heavens sugar, sugar cake. I'm not quoting, quoting that properly, but, but basically the idea that uh, Christ is like eating this cake out of amazing white flour, uh, fine wheat flour, as opposed to, you know, coarser, heavier grains. Um, and so really just kind of being tickled with the, <laughs> With the the idea that okay, so there obviously it's a very different time, and even the grains themselves would have been different, and yet there is still very much a difference between eating, say, a baked good that is made out of one kind of, uh, you know, one substance versus another. So, so thinking about how our bodily experiences, as much as they are always culturally determined. Um, there are at at the root are are some physical differences, and so so thinking about the play between cultural uh, cultural difference and then what what is what is physical and um, you know the uh, yeah and so that that gets back to then the idea of okay everybody has a body and that starts their interaction with the world, but how each culture uh, understands that body in relation to the world can can be very different. So even though it's the body's a universal, it's always all particular. Yeah, that, that I found that really interesting as well. Um, uh, could you say a few words about uh, your new project? I know you're kind of busily starting it right now, and you've kind of just come from a, a short research trip. So what are you working on next? Uh, I'm looking at cultural exchange through music and dance and public sessions across the Americas. So I'm trying to take this pretty narrow range of, of experience, of practice, of action, but try to be very broad in terms of, of geography and of, of culture. And so I want to keep it early, early modern in the Europeans, so keep it 16th and 17th century, um, not, not to focus on you know, trying to find the first contact between a given indigenous people and, and Europeans uh, or Africans and Europeans, but to really think about, all right, in in this world where there are different kinds of contacts and some people have contact through material goods and some people have face-to-face, um, how do music and dance, these experiences that even when they're right in front of us are hard to put into words, um, and what does that, what does, how can we think about that as an archive? Um, so often what we have are descriptions, say, by European travelers, but there are also uh, archaeological records of instruments. There's ethno or there's musicological uh, work on, OK, what were instruments made of? How would that have affected their sound? Um, but I have to say so this part of it was actually sparked by something very uh, pop culture, which was I was watching So You Think You Can Dance. 
<laughs> a couple summers. That's a great route for new ideas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Circle scholarship. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the commentators, one you know, one day they have guests, uh, judges, was clearly moved in different ways by various performances, but could not articulate it. Uh, could really just say that he really liked the way they moved, or they had a lot of energy. And then uh, the next time there was somebody who was very articulate, even when it was of a different dance tradition, uh, so that she could talk about uh, ways the body was moving or hinging or what a joint was doing or, or things like that, that, that translated that movement into words. Um, but that got me started thinking about, so it's difficult even when it's in front of us, even if it's you're trained in a particular tradition, uh, how much more is that, is there translation and, and incomprehension going on when it's different traditions um, and when you're, the person writing the description is not necessarily interested in um, being detailed about, say, physical emotions or sounds. Um, and so then that, and there's a lot of growing, growing scholarship, historical scholarship on sensory on, on the senses and how they change over time and, and from culture to culture. So what it means right now is I'm reading a lot of um, 16th, what I was just reading was 16th and 17th century treatises on dancing and ballet. Uh, and one of them was a, a German treatise against dancing. So uh, dancing as uh, the root of many evils because it allows for the touching of bodies between men and women. And I was telling a friend, he said, oh, so basically the plot of Footloose. <laughs> well, I hope there's a Kevin Bacon-esque character yeah, in right. that 16th century German text. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's great. And I think it, it actually connects really well with what you're talking about in Faithful Bodies. So it sounds like a great uh, uh, jumping off point from, from where you just came from. Um, well, I really enjoyed this book and I really enjoyed talking to you about it. And thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It was a, uh, had fun. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye.